I think it's unlikely. The thing is, it hasn't been inquired into properly. So it's a lie. Uh, you must, if people are quiet in the face of untruthfulness, then they are lying with it. Silence is complicity. So that's what it really is my, my upbringing, uh, which I think was quite common in the war years and just afterwards, Second, Second World War, we were taught to be truthful. And this isn't truthful. We are, as I say, in this country, mired, that's in the bog, mired in mendacity, in lies. There's lots of lies. PR is lies. In that House of Commons down the way, there's lots of lies. On that piece of paper, I'll say this, actually, I'll just repeat it to you. Uh, it's, in fact, a nice little statement I wrote yesterday afternoon, and it says, Hold this in your hearts. John Locke, who was the leader of the Enlightenment in Britain, said this in 1675, and I wish John Locke was here today. He said, where the law ends, tyranny begins. Now that sounds rather heavy, but in the spring, in the House of Commons, they bundled in an act called the Geneva Conventions Act, uh, 1957. They bundled it in with another act, uh, the Police and Order Act or something. And this is at the request of Israel. They, 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 uh, yes, I see you nod. Uh, Miss Livney and other people had lobbied the, the parliamentarians of both sides, Labour and Conservative. They'd lobbied them to remove this act or to emasculate it. And it's emasculated. So the last person that they tried to uh, question here under this act was Doron Almog, Almog. I was involved with it, actually, with a very good solicitor called Makova. And they managed, they've emasculated it now. They have to go to the, the Director of Public Prosecutions with a, to a, seek a warrant. But by the time they've done all that, they're on the phone and they've flown off wherever they're going to. Do you understand me? So you see what I mean, you see? That's exactly true. Where the law ends, tyranny begins. They removed the law, and in that we now know that war criminals can be walking along here without any chance at all, really, really, that they will be apprehended and brought to book. So our, law, our, our world becomes more lawless, not just our country. So that's what I'm standing up for, is the law. We tried it today, a bit arcane, very tricky, pretty expensive. We haven't won, but nothing has changed with Dr. Kelly. His death remains improperly investigated. And as I said before, you don't bleed to death from a cut ulnar artery. That's manifest rubbish, as another surgeon told me. And that interview was by Hassan Khani of Press TV UK. That's an Iranian-backed TV channel which was banned in the UK. We continue with another Press TV contribution. This is a documentary entitled The Death of Dr. Kelly, An Open Case, and it's from January 2013. On the 20th of March 2003, US and British forces invaded Iraq under the pretense of destroying weapons of mass destruction. In 2009, the Iraq inquiry was created to examine Britain's role in Iraq. Seen by many commentators as a marshalled and well-orchestrated production, the inquiry, led by Chairman Sir John Chilcott, was met with mixed responses by the public. Good morning, everyone. Thank you very much for coming. My name is Sir John Chilcott, and I'm the chairman of the Iraq Inquiry. 
In the months leading up to the attack, British Prime Minister Tony Blair perpetuated a lie about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq in a bid to manufacture consent for the war. The Blair government claimed that Iraq had weapons capable of striking Britain within 45 minutes. It emerged later that this claim about Iraq's capabilities had been denied by a prominent British weapons scientist, Dr David Kelly, during meetings with reporters. A few weeks later, Dr Kelly's body was found near his home in suspicious circumstances. In 1996, a plan for the invasion and occupation of Iraq was finalised in the White House by neocons Paul Wolfowitz, Richard Pearl, John Bolton, Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld. Richard Pearl stated that the plan was to wage total war by using the US military to invade and occupy any country that opposed America's self-serving foreign policies. Pearl even believed people would sing great songs about them for years. According to Bob Woodward's book, Plan of Attack, when the White House decided to accelerate their plans to invade Iraq, Blair was not consulted. Condoleezza Rice informed the British government, and it was not until the next day that Bush spoke to Blair personally and thanked him. In the months leading up to the attack, US Secretary of State Colin Powell presented misleading drawings to the United Nations about WMD in Iraq. I believe that Iraq is now in further material breach of its obligations. I believe this conclusion is irrefutable and undeniable. Iraq has now placed itself in danger of the serious consequences called for in UN Resolution 1441. Standing shoulder to shoulder with the Americans, British Prime Minister Tony Blair parroted the lie about WMD in a bid to manufacture consent for the war. It is the case that if the only means of achieving the disarmament of Iraq of weapons of mass destruction is the removal of the regime, then the removal of the regime, of course, has to be our objective. Iraq probably has no weapons of mass destruction in the commonly understood sense of the term, namely a credible device capable of being delivered against a strategic city target. It probably does still have biological toxins and battlefield chemical munitions, but it's had them since the 1980s, when U.S. companies sold Saddam anthrax agents and the then British government approved chemical and munitions factories. Why is it now so urgent that we should take military action to disarm a military capacity that has been there for 20 years and which we helped to create? Why is it necessary to resort to war this week while Saddam's ambition to complete his weapons program is blocked by the presence of UN inspectors. Only a couple of weeks ago, Hans Blix told the Security Council that the key remaining disarmament tasks could be completed within months. What was really important about this business of sites given was that when we reported that, no, we didn't find any weapons of mass destruction, they should have realized, I think, both in London and in Washington, that their sources were poor. Both Condoleezza Rice and, 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 and Prime Minister Blair, I sort of alerted to the fact that we were skeptical. And I, I, I made the remark then that I cited many times that, look, wouldn't it be paradoxical for you to, into, in, to invade Iraq with 250,000 men and find very little? Well, I think what is interesting when you look back in my lifetime is 
when Harold Wilson was the Prime Minister in, of, of Britain in the 60s, is that he did, the Labour government of the day, did not go into Vietnam. Under enormous pressure from Lyndon Johnson, they said no. Uh, Tony Blair, for some reasons that most of us don't understand, was persuaded to go into Iraq, or I didn't even think he was persuaded. He, he was side by side with the most right-wing, somewhat eccentric president in history in the United States. So it's still a question. I mean, the question that still isn't answered is why did he do it? Now, Tony Blair says, because I believed it was right. Well, I'm afraid that's not enough. That's not good enough. Why do you think the Prime Minister was ignoring the warnings you were giving and going ahead? I think this gets to the root of why we went. And I think now you can see the leaked documents. The Americans were determined to go. Blair had said he'd go with them. He couldn't get Britain there without going through the UN. But in the end, if the Americans were going, he was determined to go with them. And I repeat, I've said it before, but it's very important. There was no need to go at that time. There was no emergency. There was nothing happening that meant we couldn't have more time. It's often said that Mr. Blair made Britain the tail of the American dog. But I don't really myself buy that. I actually believe that the British were co-conspirators. They were uh, co-murderers of hundreds of thousands, maybe more than a million people in Iraq, which is a crime of almost unimaginable proportions and knocks the crimes of Mr. Charles Taylor or Mr. Ratko Mladic into, uh, into a cocked hat, actually. I believe that Mr. Blair was intellectually superior to Mr. Bush, that he led Mr. Bush rather than was led. Uh, the British were not deceived by the Americans. The British and the Americans in concert hatched a conspiracy to, to, to deceive the world. The idea that we doctored such intelligence is completely and totally false. Every single piece of intelligence that we presented was cleared very properly by the Joint Intelligence Committee. Now, eight years on, of course, we now know that, of course, they sexed up the case for war, which is what the allegation was. Of course they did it. And I don't, I don't think I meet anybody who doesn't think they sexed up the case for war. But, but I, what I'm, the point, just to keep focused on at the moment, is that the, the actual quality of the intelligence... I did believe it. I mean, that was the... And I did believe it, frankly, beyond doubt. And Beyond your doubt, but beyond anybody's doubt? Our partners in Washington are less interested in disarmament than they are in regime change in Iraq. And that explains why any evidence that inspections may be showing progress is greeted in Washington not with satisfaction, but with consternation, because it reduces the case for war. Did you feel that it gave Iraq a realistic possibility of meeting the requirements of the resolution? Yes, except that uh, it was very hard for them to declare any weapons when they didn't have any. <laughs> Hans Blix had voiced concerns about the US regime's desire for war against Iraq. He was on record as saying that Bush and Blair were exaggerating the issue in order to invade a position he maintained in the lead-up to the war. Blix has also said that the Blair government 
would have liked to have gone down the diplomatic route to disarm Saddam Hussein, but became a prisoner of a US policy heading towards war. Blix faced a barrage of intense criticism from Washington and the neocons for speaking out. It was later revealed that Tony Blair had already secretly committed Britain to war in 2002, promising George W. Bush that UK forces would join the US-led invasion come what may. Includes that Iraq has chemical and biological weapons. That Saddam has continued to produce them. That he has existing and active military plans for the use of chemical and biological weapons, which could be activated within 45 minutes. This false claim about Iraq's alleged WMD was one of many contained in what came to be known as the Dodgy Dossier, a fraudulent document endorsed by Downing Street Press Secretary Alistair Campbell. Did he tell President Bush in writing during 2002 that he would support the President if he took military action? Alistair Campbell, Downing Street Press Secretary, 1997 to 2003. I think that I would certainly say the tenor of the Prime, the Prime Minister wrote quite a lot of notes to um, the President and I would say that the tenor of them was that, as I said earlier, we share the analysis, we share the concern, we are absolutely with you in making sure that Saddam Hussein is faced up to his, his obligations and that Iraq is disarmed. If that can't be done diplomatically and it has to be done militarily, Britain will be there. That would definitely be the tenor of his communications. Claire Short, former UK Secretary of State for International Development. This is about the special relationship. Was Blair willing to say to the Americans, I'm not going with you now? It's too early. Blick should have more time. The international system needs more time to prepare. I promised you I'd be with you but this is the wrong time, we can take another six months. And I think he was so frantic to be with America that all that was thrown away. And if he'd done that, his place in history, the UK's role in the world would have been so much more honorable. But, and this is, Britain needs to think about this, the special relationship, what do we mean by it? Do we mean that we have an independent relationship and we say what we think, or do we mean we just abjectly go wherever America goes because we think that puts us in the big league and I think that was it and it's a tragedy. That is the tragedy. On the 29th of May 2003, a story broke questioning the Blair government's arguments for war. This would go on to send shockwaves through the British establishment. Andrew Gilligan, a BBC reporter back in Britain from Iraq, reported live at 6.07am on BBC Radio 4's Today programme that a news source had told him that a dossier about the military capabilities of Iraq was made sexier in the week before its publication in order to support the argument for going to war with the country. The central claim in his dossier, which he published in September, the main um, case, if you like, against, uh, against Iraq and, uh, and the main statement of the British government's belief of, of what it thought Iraq was up to. And um, what we've been told by um, one of the senior officials in charge of um, drawing up that dossier was that um, actually the government probably um, knew that that 45-minute figure was wrong even before it decided to put it in. What um, this person says is that a week before the publication date of the dossier, um, it was actually rather um, a, a, a bland production. It didn't um, the, the draft pre prepared for Mr. Blair by the intelligence agencies actually didn't say very much more than um, than was public knowledge already. And um, 
Uh, Downing Street, uh, our source says, ordered a week before publication, ordered it to be sexed up, to be made more exciting. The source of this story was the UN and British Ministry of Defence Weapons Inspector, Dr David Kelly. Eventually, it was confirmed that Dr David Kelly had been the source for BBC journalist Andrew Gilligan's story. He was, um, he'd come forward to, to the Ministry of Defence, as he thought, in confidence. He'd been promised that his name wouldn't be revealed as the source. Um, he, they'd then broken that promise. They'd outed him. They'd quite deliberately leaked, or effectively leaked, his name to the press. They gave the press a series of clues, um, which enabled anyone with an internet connection to guess his name. Um, they then confirmed the name to any journalist who guessed it, and one Newspaper, for instance, put more than 20 names to the Ministry of Defence press office before it confirmed David Kelly's. After the name emerged, um, they then um, pushed the Foreign Affairs Committee of the House of Commons to interview him, even though it had already finished its inquiry and didn't actually want to interview him. Greg Dyke, BBC Director General, 2000 to 2004. What happened after the war, of course, was we ran... uh, a piece on on the Today programme early one morning saying that a source from within uh, the intelligence community had had alleged that the government had fixed the case for war, that, um, that, that they hadn't properly scrutinised the intelligence and put it through the normal process. Uh, as a result, we ran the story. As a result, the government um, went ballistic. They then leaked out the name of the person they thought was our source, a Dr David Kelly. It, um, he was paraded on television in front of those MPs, subject to a very unpleasant experience for him. Um, uh, he was harangued by one of the MPs. It was called Chaff. Um, and he was asked a number of questions about his uh, interactions with journalists, to which he did not give totally frank answers, um, and I think that worried him. And um, the Ministry of Defence told him that they were going to investigate some of those answers. Treating you uniquely as a civil servant in highly publicising you before going to the Intelligence and Security Committee. That's the conclusion you can draw. The feeling I have, and you might be able to help me on this, is that... Certainly, this 45-minute claim, which came up in a British government document six months before the Iraq war, and was repeated, I think, three times in the document, that Iraq could have its weapons of mass destruction ready within 45 minutes, uh, which was given massive publicity in this country, um, he knew that wasn't true. Probably he, he knew a lot of other things were not true as well. But he certainly knew that wasn't true. So one day he carries on with this process of talking quietly to journalists, which he'd been encouraged to do for about 10 years, and suddenly what he says is not, um, is not acceptable for once. At that time it mattered acutely what he was saying because he was the only person of authority, professional person, who was um, evidently leaking the story that there were no, in his view, almost certainly no weapons of mass destruction. And this was before we'd invaded a a neutral country, contrary to um, international law. 
Um, and um, so therefore they, they um, had every reason to be worried about what he was saying. It could have um, removed the pretext for war. It seemed to be doing so. On July the 17th, 2003, Dr David Kelly was found dead in suspicious circumstances on Harrowden Hill, near his home in Oxfordshire. With Dr Kelly's sudden demise, the government no longer had to fear what he may or may not have known or what he may or may not have revealed to the public about the war against Iraq. I came across him as, a, as somebody with an expertise in a field I was, I was covering, Iraqi biological and chemical weapons. I, I can't exactly remember at this distance when my first meeting was or how it came about, but we had a number of one-to-one -one meetings. He was a good source. He'd given information which had been reliable in the past. We met up um, in May, uh, May 2003 um, to talk about uh, Iraqi things. Um, I'd not long come back from Iraq. He was interested in that. Um, obviously, the war had only just finished. And, uh, um, and we got to talking about the dossier, and, uh, and he said it had been transformed to make it sexier. He said um, uh, that, uh, that one of the key pieces of intelligence that, uh, that had underpinned the dossier was single source and wasn't regarded by him and other experts as reliable. Individuals who are of a particular moral fibre or who are highly principled may take a view which differs from the view being expressed by government. And they may be uh, conducible, but perhaps not if they're of such high integrity. And it may be that um, such people come under various pressures in order to be able to change their view. We see it as an everyday event, so far as members of parliament are concerned, that may want to vote against a government whip. There are all kinds of pressures that each of us are placed on, under. And undoubtedly, uh, David Kelly had many pressures, professional, public, personal, uh, which he had to face. In journalist Christopher King's Redress Information and Analysis report, published on May the 20th, 2010, he concluded that the Blair Cabal found that it had put in the public spotlight a weapons inspector of unimpeachable competence and integrity, who had sufficient knowledge and authority to destroy their entire case for war at a time when public feeling against the war was high. Jim Bran, a spokesman for the Stop the War Coalition. You cannot look at the Kelly case uh, without looking at the 12 years that went before it. And, the, and really, the 12 years that went before it is itself an enormous crime. And, and out of it comes the Kelly case. And I think it's very striking, for example, in this country where we have uh, a free press, as they put it, that uh, they promoted the Iraq war on the basis of Iraqi weapons of mass destruction, and then there was some kind of scandal when there were no weapons of mass destruction, but they managed to keep completely quiet the, the deaths of many, many people under the 12 years before that. They've just buried that question. And really, the Kelly case is part of that big um, scandal. Retired surgeon Dr David Halpin. His death whether by his own hand, by suicide, or whether it was in fact homicide, murder, was all to do with the Iraq war. Kelly wouldn't have been dead if there wasn't an Iraq war. 
and the Iraq war was founded on a pack of lies. Blair and Bush and the rest of the cabal had snatched WMD and all the rest of it from thin air as a pretext for annihilating Iraq. I'm exaggerating a little, but that's what has, in effect has happened. Iraq has been finished by this, uh, like Galloway said, like wolves you know, being set upon the country. Dr. Halpin quotes me uh, as talking about uh, Britain and America falling on Iraq like wolves, uh, but I later apologized to the wolves because no wolf would ever have committed such a savage and unnecessary act of mass destruction. The legal ramifications for Tony Blair and his government were quite clear, conspiring with the US to deceive the British public and launch a war of aggression against Iraq would be a direct violation of the Nuremberg Accords and leave the Blair government open to prosecution as war criminals. The Hutton inquiry, whose head, Lord Hutton, was appointed by the Blair regime, convened on August 12, 2003, to investigate the death of Dr Kelly. The inquiry exonerated Tony Blair and ruled that Dr Kelly's death was a suicide. I am satisfied that Dr. Kelly took his own life in the wood at Herodown Hill at a time between 4.15pm on the 17th July and 1.15am on the 18th July 2003, and that the principal cause of death was bleeding from incised wounds to the left wrist, which Dr. Kelly inflicted himself with the knife found beside his body. The Hutton Inquiry's findings were widely regarded by experts as a whitewash and a government's cover-up. After all, Lord Hutton was appointed by the very government he was supposed to investigate, thus posing a conflict of interest. Uh, there, was a there was an investigation done by someone called Lord Hutton, who was appointed by the government, and as one, as one member of the government told me at the time, or told us at the time, you know, we appointed the right judge, and they did. They appointed a judge who found for them. The inquiry that took place with Lord Hutton uh, wasn't an inquiry that investigated all the possible angles. It took place at a time when it's quite possible that there were people who ought to have come to give evidence were not called, and those people who did come and give evidence never gave evidence on oath. And I think it's a, a big failing that there hasn't been an inquiry like an inquest where a coroner could call particular people to attend and insist that they're there, and when they come, ask them to give evidence on oath. So I felt uncomfortable about the level of the investigation into the circumstances of death, and I felt extremely uncomfortable as a doctor, and indeed I have never spoken to another doctor who has done anything other than agree with me that it's highly improbable that anyone would ever die from hemorrhage as a consequence of the severance of the smaller of the two arteries in the left wrist. As the curtain came down on the Hutton inquiry, an epic sequel was already in the works, as crowds and players alike rolled up for the Iraq inquiry. British Ministry of Defence weapons inspector Dr David Kelly was found dead in suspicious circumstances in 2003, after he was revealed as the source in an investigation that dismantled the government's lies about Iraqi WMD and the case for war. The controversial Hutton inquiry 
set up to investigate Dr. Kelly's demise, was seen by many as an extension of the government's cover-up, and as more evidence came to light, it soon became clear that the death of Dr. David Kelly was still an open case. Another important aspect of the story is how the media covered these events. The BBC especially was criticised by many experts for their coverage of the Hutton Inquiry, the death of Dr. Kelly, the issue of WMD in Iraq and the subsequent war. My uh, research um, found that um, the BBC uh, from the beginning has been um, particularly cautious in the way that it's covered this issue. Um, one could perhaps argue understandably given the kind of pressure that the BBC was under at the time and ever since. Um, but I would argue that um, that kind of caution is exactly what we don't want from our public service broadcaster, exactly what the public does not expect from the BBC. The intelligence community remains convinced weapons of mass destruction will be found in Iraq. Only then will all the doubts go away. Gavin Hewitt, BBC News. The BBC is as much of a state information bureau uh, as uh, many of the state information bureau that they routinely condemn. Uh, And uh, this is, if you like, in the DNA of the BBC, that it requires to please its political masters. And in the aftermath of the Iraq war, we saw this in all its ugliness, the way in which the then Blair government was able to completely defenestrate the leadership of the BBC, getting rid of the chairman of the Board of Governors, as they then were, getting rid of the Director General, as he then was, Greg Dyke. I I don't think the media itself uh, caused the war. I mean, the war was was caused by George Bush, who wanted to go to war, and Tony Blair, who, who decided to support him. But without media on side, I think, or without some of the media on side, I think Tony Blair would have had great difficulty getting the decision to go to war through the Houses of Parliament. In reaction to the widespread criticism and pressure from the public on one hand and the government on the other, the BBC issued a statement on the 28th of January 2004. The statement reads, The BBC does accept that certain key allegations reported by Andrew Gilligan on the Today programme on May the 29th last year were wrong, and we apologise for them. We would point out again that at no stage in the last eight months have we accused the Prime Minister of lying and have said this publicly on several occasions. Although some groups are vocal in rejecting the ruling that this was a suicide, not everyone finds fault with Hutton's verdict. And essentially, the 45-minute point was probably the most important thing that was added, and the reason it hadn't been in the original draft was that it only came from one source, and most of the other claims came from two. And the intelligence agencies say they don't believe it was necessarily true because they thought the person making the claim had actually made a mistake. A lot of, a lot of the things which seem superficially suspicious about his death actually have perfectly plausible explanations. Um, the, uh, the relative lack of blood um, has been has been described by some a group of doctors the other week as as, as suspicious. Uh, they say he couldn't have died from cutting the 
cutting as he did the ulnar artery, which is a small artery that closes up when it's cut. Now, that may or may not be true. And in fact, the pathologist who did the original post-mortem has been in the papers this week saying there was actually quite a lot of blood and it, he could easily have bled to death from the ulnar artery alone. However, the ulnar artery was only, the cut to the ulnar artery was only one cause of death. The full cause of death is a combination of that with two other things. The fact that his long-standing heart condition and the fact that he swallowed 29 co-proximal tablets, a powerful pain-killing tablet. Um, and a lot of pathologists have said that the combination of those three things, the interaction of them, is a, is a totally and perfectly plausible cause of death. Because of the interest in the political issues that formed the backdrop to Dr Kelly's death, a significant number of people have raised concerns about his death and the process used to investigate it and have called for a new inquest to be set up. At this stage, only the High Court can order an inquest, and then only on an application made by me or by another with my consent. I was asked last year to make such an application and have since then been provided with a large amount of information which is said to support the case for an inquest. Mr Speaker, Having given all the material that's been sent to me the most careful consideration, I have concluded that the evidence that Dr Kelly took his own life is overwhelmingly strong. Further, there is nothing I've seen that supports any allegation that Dr Kelly was murdered or that his death was the subject of any kind of conspiracy or cover-up. I, I, I have never been a conspiracy theorist, and I think... Um, it's quite difficult to see who would have wanted Dr. Kelly dead. Um, certainly with the security services wouldn't have wanted him dead. Um, but I think if you go back to the whole of the Hutton inquiry and what it, what it looked at, I mean, the inquiry itself was quite interesting. The only trouble is Lord Hutton drew conclusions that no sane person could have drawn. The central reason why I do not believe he was murdered is that I cannot see in whose interest it would have been to murder him. I mean, if you think about it, uh, it, it, it could not possibly have been in the British government's interest to murder him because his death plunged them into a huge crisis, a crisis from which they never really recovered. And anyone with an iota of sense in Whitehall would have known that killing him would create such a crisis. Challenging the verdict anaesthesiology specialist Dr Searle Sennett, diagnostic radiology specialist Dr Stephen Frost, Dr Christopher Burns-Cox, Dr Andrew Rouse and retired surgeon Dr David Halpin submitted evidence to the Attorney General in 2011. They were applying for a new inquiry into Kelly's death. We interviewed Dr Halpin in December 2011 after the court refused their request. You don't bleed to death from cutting the ulnar artery in your wrist. That, as a surgeon, many surgeons will tell you, doesn't happen. And that's what was said to have happened to Dr Kelly. The other thing which hasn't changed is there's still no inquest. Do you understand me? Yes. There was no inquest worth its salt eight years ago, or eight and a half years ago, and there's been no inquest today. Edward Mint and Mary Cheatham are local citizens of Farringdon in Oxfordshire, where David Kelly died. They, like many others, are dismayed by the refusal to hold an inquest. I 
just can't believe that when David Halpin made this application to uh, the Attorney General for a judicial review, that how Grieve could say there was no justification for reopening the inquiry or having an inquest. I would have thought there is loads of things to be answered. And then we have the um, coroner of the time, Nicholas Gardner, saying he, he was sort of lent on. There was no suggestion that he should not hold an inquest. Far too many things are completely wrong with the whole business. At first, we didn't take an awful lot of notice because it seemed to go... Everybody said that Dr Kelly had committed suicide right from the start. It was assumed that. Of course, very nicely for the powers that be. But then um, we began to query the whole thing. And I actually bought four copies of Norman Baker's book and I passed them around my friends and anybody who was interested. And I think they too have become convinced that Dr Kelly was murdered. In May 2006, Former Lib Dem MP Norman Baker resigned from the Shadow Cabinet to pursue an investigation into the alleged murder of Dr David Kelly. In his book, The Strange Death of David Kelly, he writes, I believe there are enough doubts, enough questions, enough of a smell of stinking fish to justify reopening this episode officially. As far as the government's actions are concerned, we need a full and independent inquiry into the events that led us into war, and those that followed in the years after, when British troops were in Iraq. As far as Dr Kelly is concerned, we owe it to a good man to set aside the face of a process that occurred, and create a new process that inspires public confidence and examines this matter officially, openly and honestly, and with the rigour that the people of this country are entitled to expect. Experts maintain that the Hutton Inquiry's findings retain little to no credibility in light of evidence surrounding Dr Kelly's death. Lord Hutton refused to call the head of the Thames Valley Police Investigation, Alan Young, to give evidence. The South Central Ambulance NHS Trust claims to have lost the patient's report form completed by paramedic Vanessa Hunt at the scene of Dr Kelly's death and Dr Kelly's death certificate does not state a place of death. We thought there would have been more blood over the body if someone bled to death. What sort of experience have you got in going to um, attempted suicide and where people have indeed slashed their wrist? Well, everyone that works for the ambulance service has been to that type of injury. And yes, there's usually more blood around. Do people normally die from that sort of injury? I've never been to one that's died yet. You've been to, to a number of them? Yeah. Um, a good example is the evidence that the police had gathered. You know, the journalist Miles Goslett and others, uh, Baker, uh, Norman Baker, the MP, another journalist, um, Garrick Older, uh, through freedom of information requests, have got out very important evidence which should have been put before the Hutton Inquiry. It was withheld from the Hutton Inquiry. One of the key things is that there were no fingerprints on the knife, handle of the knife. The Thames Valley Police had conducted a series of uh, tests on items found with Dr Kelly's body, um, and they'd searched for fingerprints and DNA evidence. 
and, uh, and they'd found that, in fact, there were no fingerprints on any of the items found with his body. Um, personal items like his glasses, um, his wallet, uh, keys, his watch, uh, none of these things had, had any fingerprints on them. Um, and uh, what's curious, of course, is um, not just that there were no fingerprints on any of these items, but that this fact was never raised at the Hutton inquiry. Nobody ever asked the police who, who gave evidence to the inquiry about that. Um, and so, of course, you, you have to wonder whether an active decision was taken not to raise this. Now, I can imagine as a doctor what Kelly would have been, his physical state would have been like what his mental state was like, perhaps, as he sat there wishing, you know, plan, uh, 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 gathering courage to kill himself, he would have been sweating. Um, and uh, that's, part of, that's part of the fingerprint. The reason why fingerprints happen is sweat on the papillary ridges. And um, yeah, to find no fingerprints on a knife is extraordinary. So any, any uh, the police who were involved with this case would have wished, I would have thought, to bring forward to Hutton that there were no fingerprints on the knife. And yet, throughout the Hutton inquiry, uh, people, and Hutton himself says, you, you found evidence of third-party involvement, he said several times. Well, the thing is that if one was, was in the court, he said, I'm sorry, excuse me, sir, uh, there were no finger, fingerprints on the knife. How do you account for that? He wasn't wearing gloves. Do you see? So if you just look at that and see that this has not come properly into the public domain, it must come before our law, if we pretend we live in a democracy. Why on earth should Dr Kelly, who knew so much about death, have attempted to commit suicide by just severing the smaller of the two arteries in one wrist? That is really quite astonishing. So I think for reasons such as that, and also the number of tablets that were taken, a big issue over how many tablets were taken, how many were ingested, the levels were, were not remarkable in the blood, they weren't lethal in the blood, that those matters should have been properly investigated. So to silence him, uh, I think, could very easily have appeared um, a necessary act at the time. And of course we must always remember too that people don't always behave totally rationally. One might say it was a, a silly action as well as wicked if it happened um, but people don't governments are not that wise always it's very striking that none of the police who gave evidence to Hutton were asked about those fingerprint searches therefore they never had to say that the, that the searches had been been made and that, and that they'd drawn a blank on every single score uh, you have to wonder why on earth this this information didn't ever come out before it only came out uh, because several people made, uh, myself included, made uh, a series of freedom of information requests to Thames Valley Police about that. One can only conclude that somebody somewhere took an active decision not to ask about the fingerprint searches which had been done. Highly irregular, very odd, very unusual, and it is one of the most striking questions which remains unanswered in the whole case. Some experts agree that the coroner had a duty to conduct an inquest and that he has failed to do so. They accuse the government of facilitating malpractice and corruption at every level in this process. Dr Watts and Spencer's executive summary, taken from their inquest application, 
to the Attorney-General, cites the contradictions and implausible nature of the government-approved version of events. At 9.15am on the 18th of July 2003, the body of Dr Kelly was found with his head and shoulders against a tree. Around an hour later, the head was at some distance from the tree, sufficient for an ambulance man to stand between the tree and the head. We conclude that one or more third parties were present at the scene at Harrowden Hill and moved the body. We conclude that the likely purpose of moving the body was to create a false impression of suicide in order to conceal the murder of Dr Kelly. We conclude that the suicide conclusion of the Hutton inquiry is unsafe and untrue. In the interest of justice, an inquest is required into the suspicious death of Dr David Kelly. The death of Dr David Kelly continues to haunt the political landscape. Strong public sentiments remain regarding both the Iraq war, how that war began, and the alleged assassination of Dr David Kelly. This anger is what fuels the calls for a new inquiry. I don't have a personal view as to exactly what occurred, but I do feel that we haven't yet had a proper exploration of all the facts, even the facts that are known, let alone those that haven't yet been brought to light. And I think there would be more to come to light if the proper people were interviewed. The medical contradictions and improprieties did not receive the media attention revelations of this magnitude require. This possible self-censorship saw many journalists simply overlook the glaring inaccuracies of the government-approved story. In his report on the failure of the mainstream media, analyst Justin Schlossberg suggests that it was the adherence to a general consensus, a so-called safe zone of news, that led to journalistic blunders and oversights. Schlossberg's investigation also throws light onto the worrying trend by many corporate media outlets of simply accepting the official version of events without question or any form of adequate investigation. Um, they, there is very uh, telling use of um, particular language and particular frames, uh, both in the introductions and the conclusions to the report, that if you look closely at them, very much um, stray from the uh, impartiality uh, doctrine that uh, television broadcasters uh, tend to adopt in this country and very much uh, were, were strongly suggestive um, that uh, any idea or, or that the campaign to reopen an inquest um, was based on false pretenses that, um, that ultimately the official verdict was safe um, that uh, the government had um, opened the gates of secrecy and published all the documentary evidence which campaigners had demanded be published, which was completely factually inaccurate. The war against Iraq, coupled with the desecration of the rule of law at home and the unsolved death of Dr Kelly, has damaged the public trust in government to a great extent. The fact that numerous British governments have blocked an inquest into Dr Kelly's death whilst imposing draconian laws to curtail freedom of speech and dissent points to a bleak and self-defeating strategy. Public interest in solving the case of Dr Kelly has not abated in the years since his death. 
I think it's sensitive. I think you have to make a distinction between those things that people are actually going to do something about and those things that simply bother people. And in, and it, in that sense, it's the second category. It bothers people. It worries people. Remember that we had, for example, the largest demonstration in British history by a long way ahead of the Iraq war. Uh, we say in the anti-war movement, we say it was two million people. Nobody knows. But the point is that there are hundreds of thousands of people out there who did what they have never done before in their life, which is to march in the street. This issue has actually, if anything, um, has grown uh, in terms of capturing the attention of campaigners and of the news media themselves, who initially paid um, virtually no attention at all to um, the, the problems surrounding the official verdict of Kelly's death, as did the Hun report itself largely overlook that issue. So when, for example, some news item comes up about David Kelly or some uh, doctors report on it or ambulance workers or whatever, then uh, there is a definite level of interest. It's not some story that the media are just interested in. There's clearly it's, the media interest corresponds to a, a public interest as well. The Iraq inquiry, chaired by Sir John Chilcott, was dismayed by many as a nonsensical bit of political theatre. Toothless posturing, which sought to examine Britain's role in Iraq, the inquiry had no legal authority or power to enforce any conclusions it may have reached, and some even went so far as to suggest it was merely a stage for former Prime Minister Tony Blair to regurgitate his line on the Iraq war. The truth in the end does come out, and uh, however much it costs and however many years it takes, I believe the same will be true of uh, the Iraq story and the attendant associated story of what happened to David Kelly. Dr Stephen Frost one of the experts leading the call for a fresh inquest, stated that every medical student is taught that the coroner's duty is to speak for the dead to protect the living, and without coroners and inquests, nobody is safe. I was taught that to lie was a cardinal sin. I hate lies. I love my country. And I do not want to see my country wallowing in lies which are never resolved. A catharsis is required, and Kelly will be part of that catharsis. Many programmes have been made about the war in Iraq and the way the UK and the US justified it. The Iraq inquiry is yet to officially release its report, so it may offer some closure. But it is nearly nine years since Dr Kelly died, and despite continuing interest in his death and vocal denouncements of the Hutton inquiry, no further inquest or inquiry is planned. The suspicious death of Dr. Kelly still haunts many people, as they feel it is still unsolved. This is a case which is still open. Now, we conclude the show with the following recording. This is from December 2013, from Tony Gosling's BCFM Weekly Politics show, on Bristol Community Radio. The main speaker is old Labour economist Martin Summers, and it is the most speculative of the contributions we have this week. I make no apology for that. 
I think it will work quite well as an antidote in case you're tempted to simplistic thinking about just why David Kelly might have been murdered by forces within the UK establishment. One of the first people, if not the first person, to sign the Book of Condolence at the South African Embassy in Trafalgar Square was David Cameron. But it's interesting to see that he had a freebie trip to apartheid South Africa right at the height of the, um, uh, the ban, really. I mean, he, he admitted his party had got it wrong, though, over sanctions when he later visited Mandela. Uh, David Cameron accepted uh, an all-expenses-paid trip to apartheid South Africa. Um, while Nelson Mandela was still in prison. Uh, an updated biography of the Tory leader reveals today a trip by Mr Cameron in 1989 when he was a rising star of the Conservative Research Department was a chance for him to see for himself and was funded by a firm that lobbied against the imposition of sanctions on the apartheid regime. Critics described it as a sanction-busting jolly that raised questions about the, about the character of the man who, after a week when the government's credibility on the economy hit a new low, this is back in April 2009, uh, uh, was on course to be Prime Minister in a little more than a, a year's time. Yeah, that trip in 1989 is quite interesting because two other people were on that trip. One was Sir Kenneth Warren, who most people will, won't have heard of, but he's a rather important fundraiser for the Conservative Party and has been for many years, a sort of a, you know, a money man. And the other third person on that trip was Dr David Kelly. And the purpose of the trip was to go to arms This court. is the government scientist who yes, died in 2003 the one. in some circumstances. So there were three people on this delegation. Dr David Kelly, Sir Kenneth Warren and David Cameron, who is a, a 20-something from Conservative Central Office. And information we've been receiving suggests that there was a deal being cooked up. South Africa had nine nuclear weapons. They originally had ten nuclear weapons, which they developed at Pelindaba with the Israelis. One of them was exploded over the South Atlantic. That left nine nuclear weapons. It's like ten green bottles, isn't it, this story? Anyway, as the changes were about to take place in South Africa, the Magnus Milan, who was the uh, Defence Minister, Arms Corps, which was the uh, their, their equivalent of BAE systems, and... Uh, they they basically went to the West uh, by, via an intermediary called John Bradenkamp, who was an ex-Rhodesian SAS uh, operative, but was, was now actually a major arms dealer. People can look him up and, on, on the internet and they'll, they'll, they will find him. He actually lives in, in uh, Kilmersdown in Somerset now. But basically they did a deal. They said, we don't want Nelson Mandela and the ANC to have these nine nuclear warheads. So, we so this is actually the, the, the white South African government yeah. saying that, well, since the country's going uh, over to black majority rule, we think that they shouldn't have access to these secret nuclear weapons we've got. Yeah, because otherwise Nelson Mandela would have got his finger on the nuclear button as soon as he won the, won the election. That wasn't acceptable to the white South African elite and it wasn't acceptable to the Western powers either. So they did a deal whereby these nine nuclear warheads, which were uranium-based nuclear warheads, were sold to the Western powers, six to the Americans and three to the British. But what the, the, American, the American missiles were, the American warheads were loaded at Durban and taken to the US and dismantled. The three British warheads, and this is what the delegation, we suspect this delegation was about, they weren't sold to the British government directly. A private company called Astra Holdings, which was actually a subsidiary of Astra Fireworks, if people remember them. Uh, they are uh, 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 set up by <coughs> a chap called Stephen Cock, who used to be an MI6 officer. They bought the three warheads, as it were, on the black market from Arms Corps, 
and then sold them on to the British government for £50 million. And Margaret Thatcher, one of the last things she did as she left office was sign a, a an order, a, a payment order for £50 million to Astra Holdings for these three warheads. Uh, uh, but the warheads, in force, they, they had bought them from the South African government at much less than £50 million. And those who were involved in this scam got basically a profit from it, including the Conservative Party itself, which made £17.8 million to, put, to fund the 1992 general election. Now, it's a pretty shocking accusation, Martin. Also, well, I've made people it, before, can find it you know. People can find it online. It's uh, an article by Peter Eyre. It's probably the best one to find. You can find EYRE on his own blog or on the Palestine Telegraph website about this whole yeah. story. Um, but what evidence have you got for it? Well, I'm, I'm getting evidence from people who were involved. Um, so they're talking to me. Uh, I can't say who because they've signed the Official Secrets Act. But in any case, as you say, if people want to check this story for themselves, they can find it on Palestine Telegraph or Peter Ayers. I mean, this 17 Mark. million donation, for example, is there any evidence for that? Yes, there is. Doug, Doug Hoyle, the Labour MP, had been tipped off about this, and he made he, he actually it's in Hansard. He made he made a question in the House of Commons. I can't remember what the what the year was. It was in the 1990s, saying, "Well, where did this 17.8 million pounds come from?" And there was a sort of bluff, we can't possibly tell you, you'll have to look into it. Um, but anyway, I mean, that's a lot of money. I mean, it, it, you know, even even in banker terms, £17.8 million pounds is not peanuts, and in political terms, it's quite a large amount of money. Well, Possibly could have made the difference between ma major losing or winning the election, for example. Well, certainly a fascinating twist to David Cameron's uh, trip. There's a, further, there's a further twist to the story, of course, which is that the warheads themselves then went missing. They lost them. Well, how did they get the money for the 17 million then? They, they went round Tory party donors and asked them to chip in to the to the pot, and then they, all of these people would then be paid back, and they were paid back. They all made. They all. They, they, we, we've been given a list of people who actually made a lot of money. Makes my guns Episodes of Unwelcome Guests are available for download from our MP3 archive, unwelcomeguests.net slash archive. If you've got a fast internet connection and you'd like to download a lot at once, you can try unwelcomeguests.net slash downloads and download a hundred episodes at a time. And if you're interested to explore the circumstances surrounding the death of David Kelly, I'd encourage you to do so at wikispooks.com. And if you broadcast this show, I would encourage you to join the low-traffic mailing list at altruists.org slash unwelcome. Our theme tune is by Billy Bragg and Wilco, with lyrics by Woody Guthrie. By unwelcome travelers, another brave.